Hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And if you do, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, you'll find that on page 815 in the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. If one of those would serve you, please use it. And if you would like to take it home, please feel free to do so. And if you'd like to give it away, please feel free to do so. Matthew 10, in verse 34. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, whether at work or something that you've perhaps volunteered for, or even in a relational situation where you have found yourself thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I have. Perhaps you have as well. Whatever it is that you're thinking that about doesn't quite feel the way you thought it would isn't quite going the way you might have thought it would. Perhaps even someone wasn't honest with you about what it was going to take, or perhaps you just simply underestimated what the situation was. I wonder if perhaps maybe some of Jesus' apostles were feeling something along those lines as he continued to explain to them what his mission entailed and what they could expect as he sent them to the Jews to proclaim the gospel. This passage before us today, Matthew 10, 34 through 39, is towards the end of Jesus's second major discourse in Matthew's gospel. So it's wrapping up. This discourse, of course, being specifically about this calling of Christ on his 12 apostles to go to the Jews and spread the message of the kingdom to demonstrate the power of God through their own miraculous uh, acts and showing that the Messiah had come, the kingdom was breaking through. But it's also about his calling of his apostles to suffering, to loss, to persecution, to difficulty. And I wonder if it would be fair to say that perhaps these words in verses 34 through 39 are the hardest of them all. I see in this text three consequences of following Jesus in the way that he is describing. The first is relational division. The second is warring allegiances. And the third is self-denial. Let's start with the first one in verses 34 through 36, where we see relational division as the first consequence of following Jesus in this way. Let's read it again. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The concept of relational division resulting from the Messiah's work was not unfamiliar to Jesus' Jewish hearers and the Jewish readers even in the future of this gospel. In fact, these words that Jesus uses in verses 35 through 36 are a direct callback to Micah chapter 7, verse 6, and I'll put that on the screen, and you can see these passages compared. Micah 7, 6 says, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. 
It's almost exactly what we have before us in Matthew 10, verses 35 through 36. What Micah was saying in his prophecy was essentially an indictment on the state of the Jewish national situation. But scholars and commentators, such as one that I often use, R.T. France, and even others that he referenced, will tell you that in Jewish thought during Jesus' day, that passage in Micah 6 was also understood as having a connection to the coming messianic work and some of the negative feeling aspects of the coming Messiah's work, the messianic age, you could say. And and obviously, Jesus clearly didn't mind an association with Micah 7, verse 6, because he's quoting it here. And by the way, this is yet another instance of Matthew, multiple times throughout his gospel, referencing the Old Testament and making connections to Jesus' messianic work. But even though the concept of the Messiah's ministry bringing relational division wasn't altogether foreign to the Jews, this whole idea of no peace must have been shocking to some of those listening to him. And indeed, his reference to Micah 7, 6 was not referencing to something that felt very positive in that time when Micah was originally written. Jesus is saying there's going to be trouble. Perhaps just as shocking as it was to his original hearers, it is shocking to us. After all, speaking of Old Testament prophecy, the prophet Isaiah had said in clear language that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. And so perhaps some of these men, these very people listening at that moment, were already thinking of Jesus as the Prince of Peace if they knew Isaiah's prophecy at all, which many of them likely did. And then to hear him say, I'm not here for peace, but I'm here for a sword, that must have been shocking. And I think it is shocking to us too. Why? Well, first of all, we've got this phrase here that it says, do not think that I have come to, and then so on. And that Greek grammar and and sentence construction is exactly the same as it was in chapter 5, verse 17. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. Chapter 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to, but it's something totally different. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then down in chapter 10, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus was proactively and preemptively correcting a potentially false uh, a misunderstanding that he had come to abolish the law, and rather he wanted to make clear that instead of that, very differently, he was there to fulfill it, not abolish it. And for more on that, I invite you to go back and listen in our series to Pastor Brian's very helpful sermon on that passage several months ago. But very interestingly, Jesus uses the exact same introductory phrasing to also proactively and preemptively correct a different potential misunderstanding. Now, we need to pay attention. We need to listen carefully because this can get a little tricky. Jesus is not saying that peace has nothing to do with his kingdom and his reign. Clearly, 
Old Testament passages like in Isaiah and in Zechariah indicate that the Messiah's coming and his ministry and the resulting future reign of God eschatologically would be characterized by peace. And so it's not that Jesus is saying, you have heard it said that I would bring peace, but no, that's not going to happen. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying, and I think it's clear from the context of the words that follow and the words that even precede this passage, is that his kingdom rule, his kingdom message, and his kingdom ministry that will lead all of his people to true and eternal peace is necessarily going to include some things that don't seem very peaceful. And not even just not seem peaceful. Quite literally, there will be division. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But back to this whole idea of the do not think that I have come statement. The language here, I want to go back to that because I think it's important. The language here, just like in chapter 5, verse 17, is structured to communicate a mission statement. In other words, the original, in the original language that this was spoken and written in, it would have been received by its original hearers to understand that this was a very purposeful, very intentional mission statement kind of language. We think of mission statements as such and such organization exists to this and that and the other thing. But when the Jews heard, do not think that I have come to this, but instead to do this, they took it that way. They took it as a mission statement. So Jesus is making a powerful, intentional mission statement here. So that's one reason why it's shocking to us, because Jesus is saying it so deliberately, so purposefully and powerfully. Second of all, it's shocking to us because of the idea of Jesus saying that he was bringing a sword instead of peace. And that word sword might be a little bit different than you might think of it on the surface. Once again, we've got to think carefully here. It can't be that Jesus is saying that his movement was something that he wanted to be characterized by violence. In fact, later on in chapter 26, he explicitly rebukes and denies the violent response of One disciple who chopped off the ear of a Roman soldier that was arresting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he was betrayed. It also can't mean that Jesus doesn't want any peace and peacefulness to characterize his disciples. I already mentioned that a moment ago. But also think of this very passage, excuse me, this very book of Matthew. Just a couple of chapters ago, we have the Beatitudes where Jesus commends peacemakers. Later in the New Testament, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. And of course, as I already said, God's fully realized kingdom that is coming in the future will be characterized by peace. And Jesus calls us to pray for God's will, his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so he's not condoning violence. And again, he's not saying that there is no place for peace in his kingdom. Rather, what I think Jesus is doing here is using a metaphor to describe two things that will result from mission. One of them is division. And that's made clear, I think, by the words that follow. Verse 34, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and people's own households will be divided. 
And that's, again, where that Micah 7-6 connection comes in. And so once again, Jesus is reaching back into Old Testament prophecy and connecting himself to it in part to say that he is indeed the Messiah, but also to identify aspects of his messianic ministry. And in this case, pointing to some of those negatively felt aspects of ministry, highlighting this idea of relational division. The second thing that I think that the sword points to is suffering. And I think this is a a broad, negatively felt aspect that Jesus is pointing to here. The, The fact that devotion to His kingdom message and mission and calling would necessarily be met by opposition, even militantly so in some cases, as in the sword of the state, if you will, coming down on some of his followers. Though I think the big point here isn't so much that suffering piece, even though it's there, but rather the division piece. So I think the main point of what Jesus is getting at here in these opening verses of our passage today is that commitment to him, commitment to the mission that he is sending these 12 men on, because these things are necessarily related, commitment to him, commitment to his mission, you can't have one without the other, would result for them in relational division. Even to the point of the division of families. Sons and fathers. Mothers and daughters. In-laws. Households, whether blood relations, extended family, or the broader community of, of a household that had a master and staff and family members. In other words, just like around 10 verses ago when Jesus used a household illustration and called himself the master and his disciples the servants, Jesus is saying that association with him is going to lead to suffering. It's going to lead to division. It's not a nice thing to have any kind of relational division or strain or strife. Some folks know exactly what it is like already to have strife or strain between parents, siblings, in-laws. That's the one that usually gets joked about. But it is not a good thing. It is not a a, a helpful, a, a, a pleasantly felt thing for us. It is a, we might say, negative consequence of a commitment to follow Jesus. If loyalty to Jesus comes first, ultimate loyalty, really, truly loyal to Him, then that means, Jesus is saying, that even our earthly families, which we know are vital and wonderful and are to be a priority for us, aren't as high a priority as He is. And therefore, certain relational ties may very well wind up being strained or even tragically broken. Because when someone becomes a Jesus follower, their identity, what defines them more than anything else, is their relationship to Him. And their relationship to Him includes a calling from Him to follow Him. And of course, He also calls His followers to care about their families. 
The Bible is abundantly clear on this. Brothers and sisters, please don't hear this as a call to neglect your families. That would be evil. But disciples of Jesus are ushered into a new eternal family relationship that transcends even all the beauty and goodness and joy and delight and healthy fulfillment that earthly family offers. And when Jesus and his mission is what defines you, what identifies you, when that's at the center of everything that you are, everything that you think about, everything that you say and do, then people around you aren't going to like you as much as they otherwise might. They might feel convicted when they're around you because you're always talking about life in the local church. You're always talking about something to do with the Bible. You're always making decisions that perhaps make them feel guilty because you're doing something different than they are. Maybe you're talking a lot about people that you're witnessing to, and that's not what their lives are about, so they're putting you at arm's length or even hostile to you. Friends, if you are committed to Jesus more than anyone else, some of your relationships will suffer. Some of us here today know what this is like. Relational division because of your primary commitment to Jesus. Oh, my dear friend who has gone through this, who is going through this, or we who may go through this in the future, God will give us strength as we humbly submit ourselves to Him and remember that Jesus is worth it. And it is painful, and it will be painful. And I want to say to those of you who are going through this now, praise God for you. Keep on keeping on. Praise God for your example of holding fast to ultimate allegiance to Christ. And maybe some of us need to evaluate whether or not we tend to soft-pedal our Christian commitments in certain situations and with certain relationships out of fear of man. Or even hypocritically put our Christianity up on the shelf and then go grab it again on Sunday. So we can avoid the pain, we can avoid the stress, we can avoid the various strains that can come in our relationships because of our commitment to what God has called us to. Friends, hear these words. Union with Christ is worth division on earth. And God won't call you to division in every situation. Of course not. It would be taking it too far to say that this means you're not doing it right if you don't have someone mad at you. No, I don't think that's the case at all. The whole of Scripture wants us to pursue peace with everyone as best as we can. This is not an excuse to just be a divisive person for its own sake. It, that doesn't make you faithful to Jesus. In fact, it's the opposite of what Jesus wants your life to be characterized like. But rather, let me put it this way. When, not if, when your relationships are strained because of your primary commitment to Christ, you can be encouraged because that's exactly what following Jesus looks like sometimes. So be encouraged, not discouraged, when relationships that you have are strained as a direct result of your commitment to Jesus and his mission. I promise you, it's worth it. Jesus is worth it. 
The second consequence is similar to relational division with a little bit of nuance in there. Number two is warring allegiances. And I think verse 37 is one of the hardest verses to digest in the New Testament. It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this, of course, comes right on the heels of Jesus' previous words about division, including in families and saying that family has to ultimately come second in allegiance to him, second to him and his kingdom calling. And of course, this was also communicated in his first major discourse in Matthew's book, which is just a couple of chapters over. Turn to Matthew 8 and look at verse 18. A few verses here in Matthew 8, 18. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then here it is. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Now, I'm not preaching that passage right now. In fact, my dad did not long ago. So another sermon you can go back and listen to from several months ago. But we see that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, verses 37 is consistent with other parts of his teaching. Teaching that makes us squirm a little bit. So this consequence of following Jesus on mission, this consequence in today's text, what I'm calling rivaling, competing, warring allegiances, is not a new concept. It's also in other gospel accounts. And I think part of what makes Matthew 10.37 hard to digest is knowing one of the parallels to it where Luke says it even more harshly in chapter 14. Jesus says in that passage, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, even though I'm not preaching through Luke right now, I do want to be very clear about this verse because perhaps it was coming up in your mind when looking at Matthew 10, 37. Just like Jesus is not promoting violence in Matthew 10 or a lack of love for family in Matthew 10, he is not promoting actual sinful hatred in Luke 14. Rather, he is making a point about allegiance, and he is using a rather shocking Jewish idiom that really had more to do with comparison, hate versus love in the way that you compare the two, than actual what we would consider hate. He is not calling anyone to show actual hatred towards someone. But in terms of allegiance, that's his, even more than family. And while what Matthew records for us in chapter 10 isn't expressed as strongly as Luke 14, it's still hard for us. Loving father or mother in an inappropriate way, at least in terms of how it compares to our love for the Lord, makes you not worthy to even be one of his disciples. 
And we believe, as we should, I've said this already, that we ought to be characterized, Christians ought to be characterized by faithful and sacrificial love for our families. Children commanded to honor their parents. Parents commanded to be gracious to their children, adult children, to care for their older parents. But here Jesus says that his mission is an even higher priority than family. And he's not saying that means always neglect your family. But he is saying that if the choice for the apostles ever came down to allegiance to family or allegiance to Jesus, the right choice was Jesus. And that's why I say that one of the things that this text teaches us is that following Jesus, serving Jesus, the life of mission for Jesus that every single Christian is called to will necessarily result in a war, an inner war of allegiance inside us. And like the allegiance to family, not all of those allegiances will be to things that are inherently bad. Sometimes it's clear, am I going to devote myself to this sinful thing or to God? That choice is very clear. Sometimes there will be good things like allegiance to family. But they aren't as good. They aren't as high a priority when the choice may come as allegiance to him and his mission. Fathers, husbands, should we seek to provide for our families? 100%. Be a good provider. Be an abundant and gracious and generous provider for your family. But what are we going to do if God calls us to utilize one or more of our paychecks or a disbursement from a savings account in order to give to a certain aspect of gospel ministry? Whether it's global missions or our local church or a benevolence need in the church body or whatever it might be. That's just one example. It's possible, in other words, that we might be presented with an opportunity to serve the mission of Christ in a way that will necessarily result in less stuff for our families, just to use that illustration. Or a quality of life adjustment. Or less time in recreation and amusement. You see how sometimes allegiance to God is going to overtake our allegiance to even our family sometimes? And friend, what if your devotion to Jesus as Savior, as Master, and your commitment to serving Him and His mission and His church leads your spouse, your parents, your children, other relatives to look down on you, to treat you poorly, to be hostile to you, to keep you at arm's length, or as some have experienced many times in this world, even disown you? Are you willing, are we willing to remain devoted to Jesus even if it hurts your family relationships? And I know some of you in this very room know exactly what it's like to have a family relationship strained in a painful way because of your primary allegiance to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus knows what it's like too. He's with you. He suffered strain in his earthly family. Look it up. And by the way, you know, we could expand this out in terms of applicationally a little further to relationships with people who are like family to us, close friends. Jesus' closest friends, on top of the strain that he suffered with certain family members, 
they weren't always in sync with Jesus' commitment to his mission. From Peter's denial to the disciples fleeing in the garden to certain disciples earlier on leaving him when they just kind of didn't like his teaching anymore, it made them uncomfortable, all the way to Judas' betrayal. All because at some point, for whatever sinful reason, following Jesus, engaging with Him and His mission that He invites His followers to join Him on became a bridge too far for them. They just couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't stand it any longer. And at these various points, for some of Jesus' family members and close friends, they chose to distance themselves from Him. For the sake of this world, for the sake of their standing in it, for their reputation, for their future, whatever it might be, those things were then, at that moment, more important for them than Jesus was. And the point is that Jesus' commitment to his kingdom mission had consequences that included the straining of family relationships, relationships that were like family too. And if you want to even call what was going on in Jesus in those moments a war of allegiance, which I don't think we really can because he's perfect and he didn't have to, uh, he never sinned in any way. Perhaps the temptation was there. We know he was tempted by the evil one. Perhaps the opportunity, in other words, was there for him to differ in his allegiance, but he was always faithful to his kingdom mission, even when it meant the straining of his closest relationships. And that's why he says that you're not worthy of him in this text. If you can't set aside your family for my sake. If you can't side with me over your family. Not because family doesn't matter. It does. It matters massively. But because family isn't ultimate like Jesus is. Like the mission is. Like God's grand plan of redemption is. And so when we have in verse 37 and even into 38 this recurrence of the word worthy three times, again, Jesus is not talking about worthiness in the kind of terms that we might think of as if one person or the other is any more or less worthy to be a Christian. Perhaps it might be helpful, as I actually don't even remember which uh, book I was reading when I heard it suggested, read it suggested, that it would be helpful to think of it in a phrase such as, has what it takes. You could think of it that way. Whoever loves father or mother more than me does not have what it takes to be one of my disciples. Certainly there are eternal implications for this too because it could be said that if your life consistently, faithfully demonstrates that you don't have what it takes to live on mission for Jesus, then whether or not you're a disciple at all might need to be questioned because at the heart of what it means to be a disciple is a commitment to make disciples. But, What Jesus is talking about here is the same kind of worthy as in a few verses earlier when he told his apostles, these very men in this very passage, to judge whether or not people, homes, even whole towns were worthy of the message that they were sharing. And if you understand this instance of worthy in the context of the previous ones, as I believe we should, then I think it makes Jesus' words actually even more astonishing because what Jesus is therefore saying to his 12 apostles is that just like some of the people in the Jewish towns that they were heading to were not going to be worthy of the kingdom because they weren't going to be receptive to it, they weren't going to be all in on it and submissive to its call, so too, Jesus says to these 12 guys, anyone 
who isn't willing to choose me over family isn't worthy. He's putting both in the same boat. Anyone not willing to choose Jesus over family is like those people, those homes, those towns that the apostles were told to shake the dust off of their feet from and move on. So I think it's even more sobering to understand it in its context. Because it also means that there's a sense to which even you and I, those who are following Jesus and have repented of sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, could demonstrate by our words, our thoughts and actions, at least in a moment, a kind of unworthiness of the kingdom because of our allegiance war going on inside us, tending away from Christ. Friends, true devotion to Jesus includes devotion to this mission that he was calling the apostles to in a unique way, but that we are also called to in our own context. And if our devotion to the mission of Christ is usurped or negated by our devotion to anyone else or anything else, even something gloriously wonderful and important and beautiful and vital like family, then we may need to repent. Because allegiance to anyone or anything more than Jesus, more than God, is ultimately idolatry, idol worship. And it's a sobering thing to come to grips with the fact that there are many good and wonderful, important things, such as family, that can be twisted by sin into idol worship. And we must be realistic about it, repent if needed, and renew our minds regularly about where the ultimate, where our ultimate eternal allegiance really lies. And as I said a moment ago, I'll say again, allegiance to Jesus is worth it. But what it's ultimately going to take to do this is the third consequence of following Jesus, and that's self-denial. Because putting our priorities, putting our devotion, our allegiance in the right order does not come to us naturally. What comes to us naturally is not self-sacrifice or selfless service like we talked about in our E412 class this morning. Not the denial of our wants and needs, but rather what comes to us naturally is self-advancement, self-preservation, self-centeredness. And of course, some will grow in maturity over time to various degrees of increased faithful lives of selfless devotion to Jesus. But no matter whom you are, it's going to take some serious miraculous, gospel-fueled, spirit-empowered effort and change. Verse 38 says, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In reality, verses 37 and 38 belong together grammatically because it is, 38 is a continuation of the worthy theme. You see that? Whoever is wor- not worthy of me if you love your father and mother more, you're not worthy of me if you love your children more, and you're not worthy of me if you don't take up your cross and follow me. It's part of why I say that the whole warring allegiance thing is going to take this third aspect, this third consequence of following and serving Jesus, which is self-denial. Verse 38's theme of cross-bearing 
relates to verse 39's willingness to lay down one's life. And so thus, I understood them together this way. And so I think these final two verses, and particularly verse 39, is where Jesus' message in these verses becomes really practical. It's a rubber meets the, the rubber meets the road way to plug in to Jesus' mission is by willingness to take up a cross and follow him. In other words, to lay down your life. Now, some of us may be familiar with what a cross is, the cross that Jesus was referring to, and have at least a basic level understanding of the function of a Roman cross. But here's the gist of it, if you don't. It was really, really bad. Maybe we also can easily forget in our own post-Calvary's cross point of view is that the point that Jesus at the point that Jesus was saying this, he hadn't gone to Calvary yet. And so the apostles that he was speaking to weren't listening to him say these things and thinking in their mind's eye, looking back to the moment where their Savior was crucified and risen for them. When Jesus said, it's going to take you taking up your cross and following me, none of them were going, mm, amen, just as our Savior did for us. That's not what they were thinking. No, they would have recoiled and wondered, what on earth is Jesus talking about here? Why would our precious Messiah who's coming to save us and rescue us from, from all the oppression that we face reference an evil pagan torture device as an illustration of what it takes to follow him? Because as you may know, Roman crosses were used on more people than just Jesus. The Jews were already familiar with what a cross was. The Jewish people who were occupied by the Romans would have seen them far too often. They would have walked by criminals crucified outside the city. And so while this was before Jesus' crucifixion, the concept of crucifixion was very familiar to his listeners. But in another way, it was very foreign for them because it was this Roman thing. It was this pagan, evil, barbaric instrument of torture and execution. And so Jesus references a cross as an illustration of what it takes to follow him. He is calling for the apostles to be willing to undergo subjection to the pain and shame of cross-bearing for the sake of his mission. Now, I don't think that means he is literally calling every single one of these 12 apostles to be actually physically crucified, though many of them did wind up being crucified. He's using this illustration rather to make a larger point that just like the victim of a crucifixion had to carry the cross on their back in shame to their place of execution and then even undergo more pain and shame that came as they hung on their cross, so too, in a similar way, must disciples be willing to deny themselves to that level of excruciating pain and shame to lay down their life, to lay down their pride, to lay down their selves. Because just like Jesus wasn't saying, everyone go tell your family you hate them now, 
He also wasn't saying everyone has to face all the exact same kinds of shame and suffering of a crucifixion. Rather, he was saying devotion to my mission has consequences that are going to include relational strain, a war of allegiance inside you, and self-denial even to the point of great suffering. It takes tremendous denial of self-preservation, self-advancement, self-service and self-love to follow Jesus. So much so that Jesus compares it to carrying a cross and being crucified. And you know when Jesus says in verse 39 that whoever finds his life will lose his life and whoever loses his life will find his life, even though that can sound a bit confusing to us, what Jesus is doing here is not simply as he is talking about willingness to lose one's life, he's not simply talking about being willing to die because life on this earth in a relationship with him is just so much better than life on this earth without it. There's something to that, of course, but the wording in the original Greek language shows us that what Jesus was doing here was probably a bit more of a word play that his original hearers would have understood. The Greek word for life here is the word psyche, and it has more to do with the soul than with the blood in our veins and the air in our lungs. And so what Jesus is really getting at here is this, the, we might say, real life that is in the soul, the life that lasts forever, is what you're gaining when you're willing to lose everything else, even the so-called life of your physical body for the sake of the eternal real life that you'll never lose when you follow him in other words you might lose your physical life but you'll never lose your realist life when you are devoted to him And that's once again why I have just been thinking over these last several weeks, you've heard me use the phrase multiple times about this idea of plugging into reality. Because life with Jesus and for Jesus is life at its realest. And if our grip on this temporary physical life is too strong, we're going to miss out on that realest life there is. Life with Jesus both in this life and forevermore. And so whoever finds his real life in this world is ultimately going to lose everything. But whoever is willing to lose life in this world for the sake of realist life will find that they've gained everything. It's similar to what Jesus said in another point, isn't it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. But oh my friends, how rarely we tend to think this way. How rarely we tend to act this way. Oh, we would recoil like the apostles might have done. Oh, we would say, no, Lord, surely not social shame. Surely not physical pain. Surely not the loss of hopes and dreams. Surely not the loss of earthly relationships and pleasures and treasure. Surely not the decreasing of my standard of living and my comforts, my perfectly ordered and controlled life. 
But I'm convinced that our Lord and Master would look at what, would have us look at what He has done for us before we would dare utter such words. Because if you think about it, Jesus literally lived out every word of this passage. His commitment to the mission the Father sent him on, the mission of gospel-proclaiming, kingdom-advancing work included so much relational division. He was forsaken by followers. He was resisted by friends. He was opposed by family members multiple times on his mission to accomplish redemption for us. And throughout his mission, his devotion to his father and what he was called to do led him to remain allied to his father over everything else. His allegiance was clear. Did he not say in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done? And of course, he denied himself like no one else ever has or ever will. The infinite, holy, glorious, beautiful, greatest treasure of the universe let go of his wants, his comforts, his needs in this life to the point of literally carrying a Roman cross on his back up Calvary's hill to a place of unjust, excruciating, shameful execution because of his unwavering devotion to the mission of good news spreading kingdom advancement. And so before we go, I would ask myself and I would ask you, what about our lives? lives? Are you reluctant to lose or let go of? And here's the real money question. If God calls you to let it go, are you still going to be okay with following him? Oh, my friends, look to Jesus when you're tempted to self-preserve instead of follow him. When caring too much about money or worshiping our families or being obsessed with earthly success and advancement or saving face with our friends or keeping our stress minimal. When those things all suddenly seem ultimate, remember Jesus. Look to him crucified for you and follow him with all of your heart our risen savior our lord and our master the consequences of jesus's mission are indeed costly and you must count the cost but my friends as i've said multiple times i'll say it again as we close the cost the return on that cost makes the cost totally worth it let's pray Oh Lord, what could possibly be better than a real, eternal, vibrant, and obedient relationship with Jesus in full devotion, knowing that no matter how painful, no matter how excruciating even the consequences of the mission may get, our Savior is totally worth it. Give us the strength that we need to do this because this is not something that we can accomplish in our own strength. It is something that we need your help for. Because in our natural bent, we want to preserve ourselves, protect ourselves, 
and advance ourselves rather than deny ourselves as you have called us to. So please, help us to be willing to lose whatever you call us to be willing to lose in order to follow you. Let's continue in prayer and meditation for just a few minutes.